Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. The breadth of experience Colleen Murphy has picked up since her obsession with music and sound began in the 80s is staggering. Since starting her first radio show at age 14, she's worked in record stores, produced and presented countless hours of radio, launched a record label, produced her own music, thrown events, DJed around the world, and managed to become an exponent of great sound systems and high quality audio along the way. Apart from co-hosting David Mancuso's storied loft parties in the 90s, she helped establish its London successor, Lucky Cloud. More recently, she also launched classic album Sundays, which offers the public a chance to hear celebrated records on an audiophile system in an atmosphere free from distractions. Given Murphy's history and achievements, she makes a perfect subject for the first edition of Full Circle, a series of talks celebrating women in music. In conversation with Martha Pazienti Caden, we hear about the process of becoming a great radio presenter, Mancuso's philosophies on sound, the joy of DJing without headphones, and much more besides. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Colleen Murphy is up next. Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming and welcome to RA and welcome to Full Circle, which is the very first uh, in a series of exchanges where we're going to be celebrating some incredible women in music. Um, So to start with, can everyone please give a hand and a very warm welcome to Colleen Cosmo Murphy. Thank you. Thanks for coming, Colleen. My pleasure. Um, We are going to spend some time getting to know you better. Uh, your whole journey. Um, so can we take things all the way back to the beginning, please? What's your earliest music memory? Oh my gosh, it's a really good one, actually. Uh, I had a lot of older, I come from a very big Irish Catholic family outside of Boston. And, you know, there weren't much, there wasn't much space between siblings and, and between me and my uncles and aunts either. So when I was growing up, my aunts and uncles were teenagers and I was in my uncle's bedroom one day alone with all of his ultraviolet lights on. It was the 70s. It was fantastic. And he had a little transistor radio and I still thought that little people were in the radio singing and playing playing records. I mean, playing playing music. I didn't, you know, I didn't know how the radio worked. I just thought music comes from there. And I heard this uh, bass line, new, 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 which anyone my age knows, it was David Essex, rock on. And it was my first psychedelic experience, basically, at the age of, I think I was six. I just remember being, oh my gosh, that sound is amazing. And also thinking someone's actually inside the radio playing it too. So it was extra psychedelic. And uh, (laughs) that was my first first real musical experience that was very, very, very deep. And you've mentioned the radio there, which is a medium that is very close to my heart. Um, Tell me about your relationship to radio when you were first starting out in music. Okay, so I remember when I first got my first transistor radio, I think it was couple years after that incident 
And I got it for Christmas, and I ran upstairs to my bedroom, and I turned it on, and Silver Convention, Fly Robin Fly came on. I still remember the moment, everything. And I became obsessed with the radio. I listened to the radio all the time. And I grew up outside of Boston, and Boston had a lot of great college radio stations. We were quite lucky. It has the most universities and college, colleges um, out of any other city in, in the United States, possibly the world. I don't know. So, of course, it was all about terrestrial radio back then, so that's how you discovered music. Um, so we had great radio stations from many different universities. And then also our own kind of commercial stations were still a bit more liberal than other American stations across the country. And there was this one show uh, called Nocturnal Emissions, <laughs> hosted by a guy named Oedipus. I kid you not. This, you can't make this stuff up. Who became a friend of mine later. He was a program director of a radio station called WBCN, which started the year that I was born and um, was very alternative, uh, very counterculture. And I used to tape those shows, his shows, and that's how I first discovered Brian Eno and all sorts of music that I would not have discovered on Top 40 Radio. But I should rewind a bit. I actually started my own radio show when I was 14. So, um, and, and my high school had a radio station that was 10 watts. And my, when another cousin of mine had a, a radio show, she asked me to come up. And it was the radio station was just off the library, the school library. And I remember she turned the mics on, live mic. And she asked me to come speak on the mic, and I was so scared. I actually ran away screaming into the library. But after that, I ended up having a radio show for all four years of high school. And they and all the, the kinds of music that really varied quite a bit from early hip-hop and electro to punk, uh, hardcore, post-punk, and even things like Chardet. I mean, I was like, by my senior year of high school, I was had working in a record shop for two years. So I was really mashing it all up but that's that's kind of where I started so you were working in a record shop and is that where you got most of your music from well yeah I started well I started collecting when I was 15 uh, going into Boston we had a lot of great used record shops actually and uh, then when I was 16 I, and I could get a job I was actually at a concert and I was talking to some guy you know outside the the Worcester Centrum it was like you know um, and we were talking about music and I and he's like, gosh, you know uh, all different kinds of music. You know, you know a lot about music. You should come and work for this record shop that I'm working for because they need some help for Christmas. This is the year that Band Aid. Do you know it's Christmas? Came out. It was quite busy. I, I remember I was working there behind the till because that's where all of the girls and the women worked. They, we all did the cash register, and it was only guys on the floor helping people with music. And then I guess it became quickly apparent to my boss or my two bosses that I should actually be out on the floor. So I was the first woman to, or girl still at that time really, to uh, go out there and really be helping people and doing the stock and, you know, and talking to people about records and helping them find things. And you stuck with the radio later on as well? Yeah, I, uh, I went to New York, I went to NYU uh, and in the mid 80s. I moved to New York City, which was just amazing in the 1980s. And I, uh, the first week I went up to WNYU. The reason I picked the university was because they had a great radio station. It was a top radio station really in the country at the time because it had so many listeners because, of course, this terrestrial radio is all about density of population and the reach of your signal. And um, I went up there and I quickly became like the PSA director and started an AM show. And I worked the ranks up until I was a program director and I was the first female program director there and started doing the anchor shows. And, um, you know, I, I, it was it was really my life. It was all of our lives, actually. We were there at a really great time. We would like, you know, be sleeping overnight in the studio. We had all the bands are coming through. I mean, everyone was coming through for interviews and live sets. You know, from Nick Cave to Bjork, I mean, the Sugar Cubes to, I mean, you name it. We had everyone through because they were coming through and playing and all the record companies were there. So it was, it was, we were so fortunate. It was just so incredible. Um, what did you like at the time about radio as a medium for sharing the music that you were really liking? Well, I think I, because I was a fan really as a consumer first, it's not a great word, as a listener, and 
it's what turned me on to music. Um, so I grew up in a very small New England town with amongst people who had very conservative music taste. You know, it was just basically top 40 in classic rock, and that was it. You know, I would hear Brian Eno on the radio, and that's that's how I became obsessed. Was because I was just it was a it was a platform for discovery, and there was no internet. There's no way to learn about music. I mean, that was that, and going into record shops and saying, "Oh, I like that record cover," you know, or buying you know Melody Maker or things like that. Uh, some of the music, but most of the music press was Rolling Stone in the United States still, so it was still very much you know classic rock. Um, so it was a whole process of discovery. And then once I started, you know, widening my own experience of music, it was just a real honor to be able to share my experience and to turn people onto it. And that's, I think, I think that's the one thing that has linked all the different things that I've done in my entire life is musical curation and, and education really is like turning people onto music, whether it's new or old. And were you finding that the kind of intimate studio environment was a way to like get deeper connections with the artists that you were interviewing and having through for sessions? And did you kind of make friends that way? I did make friends. It was interesting. I, you know, I listened back to some of my early interviews and, oh my gosh, I sound like a different person, number one. I, I found this box of tapes in my loft in, my, in our um, a couple months ago and I was looking for the Christmas tree stuff, you know, for Christmas. And I was like, oh, there's this box of tapes. And it was all these radio shows from the 90s where I'd interviewed people like Rome Anthony and all these like major kind of house people in, in New York. And I thought, oh, so a friend of mine sent me a, a tape deck because I, I don't even have a tape deck anymore. And I listened back and, you know, my voice was like, you know, two octaves higher and I had a New York accent. It was, I was like, keep it locked, you know, <laughs> it was really funny, but it was really sweet to listen to. Oh, and I found one of my high school ones too, which was incredible. Um, but it was interesting to listen to. I think the thing for me was a focus of community because it was really talking about what was going on in New York City at that time. I wanted to do shout outs to everybody and to talk about other people's parties or you know, different parties that were going on. It was like a focal point because there weren't really those types of weekly house radio shows. I've kind of sped up to the 1990s now. But I think it's the whole thing of the focus of community and education. And in terms of interviews, I wouldn't say in the very beginning I was that great, to be honest. Uh, I think it took me a few years to kind of warm up. But what happened was I started uh, producing and hosting and, and editing um, syndicated radio shows after university. And that's when I started interviewing like hundreds of bands, like everyone from like 1991 to 94 that was doing hip hop or, uh, well, what became alternative, you know. I mean, I interviewed Nirvana the week Nevermind came out. And you just, you just learn to become... You just got more comfortable being an interviewer and having being a conversationalist. So I wouldn't say in the beginning I was very good. I think it's a, a process, you know. Um, but I, I, I listen back to some of those interviews now that I did live on the air, which is always so different. And it's, it's really wonderful. It's, it's a total time capsule about a whole kind of time and place in New York City. Do you have any particular, like, interviews or sessions that really have stayed with you this whole time? I was a big Butthole Surfers fan in the late 80s, and I had seen them so many times. And, I mean, they were almost, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, but I guess when you're, like, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, sometimes, you know, bands are gods, and, and the Butthole Surfers were. And uh, I saw them so many times. And I remember I got the opportunity to interview Paul Leary, actually. And I, I had heard, other friends of mine had interviewed them and had really terrible experiences, so I was incredibly nervous. But it was such a great interview because he was just really funny and I was like crying, laughing. Um, but I, I have to say, I, that's such a memorable one because I think it's one where I felt like I had finally cracked it. Like there was someone who I really, you, don't, you never want to meet your heroes in a certain way, I suppose, in a, in a certain sense. And here I was meeting one of my heroes of that time. And it was actually really enjoyable. And I was able to kind of get past the nerves and to have a conversation and to connect. And I think that's really what you want out of an interview is a, is a, a conversation, connecting. Uh, and I think that's kind of cracked it for me.
Okay, let's talk a bit more about New York. Um, would you describe what it was like to walk into the loft for the very first time? Yeah, uh, basically my friend Adam, uh, who is a friend of mine, and he was about my age, and he, in the late 80s, he was going all over the place to all the different clubs in New York City. And I was going more to live shows, so I was hanging at CBGB's and going to the Ritz and doing all that kind of thing. And he would take me out every now and then to different clubs, like tracks, like house clubs and stuff, and parties like Payday. And I'd have a nice time. It was really fun. I'd dance. Um, but I wasn't like, what's that record? I need to have that record. You know, I was just more like, hey, this is great. I'm having a great time. I'm dancing. It's fun. But it wasn't the music that I was collecting. It didn't move me past, you know, the weekend, basically, I suppose. So I was actually living around the corner from David's place, not knowing. I didn't know who he was or anything like this existed. But he, I later found out, I went to this place called The Choice first, which was in his loft. I, I put this together later. So that was like 1990, I think, when I was still at NYU. And um, Adam had brought me there. And so was fast forward maybe a year or two later, uh, I had already kind of done some traveling and lived in San Francisco and traveled backpack Central America. So I'd done quite a bit and I was working back in New York doing these radio shows. And he said, hey, do you want to come out? I'm, take, I'm going to this party. Um, I don't even think he told me what the name was or anything. I don't remember any of that. But he lived around the corner and we went after midnight because he you know, opened at midnight. And there was nothing out front that you would think that there's a party going on inside. There's no one standing outside. There's, I mean, it was his apartment. It was his, it was his house. So there wouldn't be a sign. It was a private party. It still is a private party, the loft. And went in, I paid uh, as a contribution, $9.99, and then went through the second set of doors, and it was just this big uh, open space that would have been a former theater, I found out later, that where the floors have been leveled out. So it was this big cavernous space on 3rd Street between Avenues B and C. And it was, you could clearly see it was somebody's home. I mean, there was a whole kitchen set up on one side. Uh, there was a bed in the corner. Uh, but it was also clearly set up for a party. There was a coat check that was free. I mean, as I should mention, as soon as you walk through those doors, no money changed hands. There's no commerce at all. So for anything. So it was like, you know, BYOB or, and they, he had, you know, so a big vegetarian spread was laid out probably at five in the morning. Uh, coat checky, just, you know, someone just took your coat and, and there's, no, there's no financial transaction. It was a very sacred space, you know, and I'm also a hippie in many ways too. So um, I really kind of touched that sensibility. And the way it was decorated was very homey, but very psychedelic. Uh, but not, you know, anything flashy. It was a, there was a big mirror ball, but there was, you know, all sorts of just homey uh, decorations, whether it was, you know, I can't remember exactly. I think the Buddha may have been there. I, I can't remember now all the, different, all the different things. And then there was this gentleman standing there who looked quite mystical, like, like, a, bit, like a hippie as well. Uh, he was in his late 40s at that time, and I was in my early 20s. And he was playing records on this sound system that was just out of this world. I mean, I had studied sound at NYU and radio and the tape editor, and I you know, could record and all that stuff, but I didn't know about hi-fi. Uh, and the sound that was reproduced in that room through those speakers and from his whole system, I, it was just incredible. There was so much nuance and subtlety and beauty really. You used to go into clubs and it's all bass and then distortion. And I never really thought about it that way. That's just how it was. I, mean, I used to go to punk rock shows. So, I mean, I would be standing in front of the, you know, stacks and the Ramones are playing. So, I mean, I was kind of used to that really. And this was just so delicate and so beautiful. And the people were incredible. The people were all different ages and, um, and ethnic backgrounds and uh, from all different sexual orientation and economic backgrounds, which I think is a huge, huge thing. And it was a very safe place. Like, it just felt, you felt like a, 
everyone was behaving because there was no security. There's, you know, this is just people self police themselves because it was David's home. And I heard music I'd never heard before that night and played in a way that I had never heard it played, like more like a musical journey. I mean, I was used to playing records and doing long mixes myself as a, as a DJ with a different kind of music. And this was just a whole other, and I didn't know these records either. That was the other thing. So I started going pretty much every week or as much as I could. I, I, they had to sign me up um, because you had, you know, it's a private party. They had to sign me up and they had to, you had to really be 25. <laughs> it was a real problem because I was under 25, but they did, they signed me up. And, I, and sometimes I'd start going on my own and I felt very safe as a female, as a young female going on my own and hanging out and meeting people. And I still see some of those people today. It was, I was just over there for the law 49th anniversary and, Still people I met the first time I was there. This was just absolutely wonderful, absolutely wonderful experience. If you had to measure it, what would you say the impact the loft has had on you would be? Well, it definitely changed my life. David changed my life. And uh, I had a radio show, another radio show at that time. I got very inspired to, to start collecting this kind of music. I got asked back to WNYU while I was still producing these other syndicated radio shows. And I said, well, I want to do something different than I did before because I had a... Um, 60s Psychedelia show. I had the new afternoon show where we had all the different like new artists on. And uh, I said, I want to do something more with like club music and dance music. And I said, okay. So I, I did that. And then I, um, I really wanted David to come up to the radio show. But he had never really... David wasn't a DJ. Uh, he was a musical host. He was a party host, you know, who, who was able to curate and put together music so beautifully. But that's, he didn't consider himself a DJ. And he never played records outside of his own home. That's the only place he ever played records was his own home. Starting in 19, well, before even 1970 when the, the parties officially started. <clears throat> so I asked a friend who was friendly with him, do you think David would do my radio show? And he went up and asked David at some point. And David said, well, I'd like to kind of get to know her first. You know, uh, why don't we go out for a drink? So he and I went out for a drink uh, at a bar in Avenue A. And we started talking. And we spoke about um, synchronicity in music, which is something I'm really into, and how we're all kind of connected in a certain way. Like I'd be playing a record at the radio station and have – that one one record, this turntable that's playing, going out over air. The next one's queued up, and someone would call and ask for the one that's queued up, or or you know. So that would happen to me, or I, or the same thing, vice versa. I'd hear Dave would play something, and I'd think, oh, no, it go good next in my head, and that's what he would play. And it's just that kind of cosmic kind of connection and musical synchronicity. We spoke about that. We just became friends, and he came up to my radio show, and then. Um, after that, I guess it was a few weeks later, he said, hey, why don't you come play some records with me at the party? And I was like, what? <laughs> it just never even occurred to me. I knew his cartridges cost like a few grand each. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, you know. And then plus there's no headphones. It's not like a, it's not a DJ setup. It's a hi-fi setup. The preamp that he uses is not a mixer. It's a, it's a preamp uh, that has no headphone jack. So you do everything by eye. And I think I listened to my entire record collection to memorize it. And I think I played four records that night. So, uh, but it started a very long friendship and mentorship. And, you know, we, it, 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 he changed my life. He changed a lot of people's lives too. And not just people who are DJs or have, own, have clubs. And he changed a lot. Of, I don't even think that's his, that's, as significant as the lives, the communities that he's he built, he was responsible for kind of helping um, generate. And these communities exist today throughout the world. But you go to a loft party now, and there's people, you know, in their late seventies, uh, all the way down to their twenties. Actually, my daughter goes, so she's in a, she's a teenager. So it's that I think is a lot more significant than David changing the lives of certain DJs. I think it, the, the, the impact he had on people's lives where they had a place to go that was private, that was safe, there's no photographs, where you could mix with all different kinds of people and have a great dance. I think that is far more significant. And how did your involvement in the party grow from there? 
Dave was having a hard time in the 90s. Um, he had he lost the building on 3rd Street. He uh, The East Village was becoming gentrified. It was becoming harder. And all the places where he had been on Broadway and in Soho, on Prince Street, these were areas that hadn't really been gentrified. And they were kind of like no man's land type areas. And even 3rd Street between B and C was known for this terrible heroin epidemic at the time. Uh, but then, you know, money starts coming in, the stock market, was in, you know, it's this post-80s and money starts flooding into the city and it starts to change. And we had a, a, a terrible mayor, Giuliani, as well, uh, who was really difficult with nightlife, let's put it that way. And so he was having a hard time financially. There were a lot of people, he had lost a lot of people who used to go to his parties on Prince Street, which was probably the most successful place that he had, the most people going, the biggest place. They didn't want to go to Third Street because it was, you know, Alphabet City and it was a bit edgy. People grew up, they moved to the suburbs, had kids, had jobs, whatever. So he was having a rough time. And so... Me and another friend, Goshi, as well. Um, other people, too, not just the two of us, but many of us helped David. And I was one of those people that really helped David um, as well. Uh, I should say he should also help me. He took me under his wing and really taught me a lot about sound. Um, but, yes, I would fill in for him sometimes, or I'd play for him, or I'd play with him, or brought new a lot of new records. That was kind of one thing. I was working at Dance Tracks. Uh, by this time, which was like the kind of cool record shop in the East Village. Uh, and I would bring like, you know, paperclip people throw, or I'd, I'd bring like new records from the time, imports or, or anything. So I was still buying a lot of music. And I had a pretty good idea of what I thought would work there, you know. Um, and then... You know, he had to move around to a few different spots, Avenue A, Avenue B, and it was the night before I moved here 20 years ago, February 14th, uh, so 13th to the 14th, we had his, we had, he had a going away party for me, a loft party, because he was still doing them on almost every Saturday. And it was his first time doing it outside of his own apartment. So I, I don't think he played. I think, I think it, was, it was me, but I can't remember if there was someone else as well. I can't remember. But I know he didn't. Um, and it was his first time he had to actually have a party outside. He probably would have been too nervous, actually, to do it. So probably he probably didn't. <laughs> and um, at that time, I'd also mentioned to him, because I, I felt that this is before my friend Tim's book had come out. And I knew this. And people didn't really know much about David. He was still kind of a mystery even in New York City. You had to really be in the know. Like you would have to be, I went to the Paradise Garage, I knew Larry Levan, and that's how I know who David Mancuso is, or people that went to his party. Loads of people did. They were older than me who went, um, you know, to Prince Street and all those parties. But mainly he was a mystery. You know, there was no internet to figure out. I mean, there, it was just starting, I should say, but there wasn't a lot of information. There's no photographs. There's no documentation. It's a house party. It's a private party. And uh, I felt that he, I, I felt that he was really, well, a lot of us knew he was really suffering financially. And so I suggested, why don't you do some compilations? And he said, only with you, Colleen. And so I said, okay, well, I'm, you know, I worked in record shops. I'd worked for spiritual life music. I had, you know, been in the business as well as being a DJ and, and everything else. So I got Newphonic involved, so I had a relationship, and I was just moving over here. And that, I think, really kind of opened up a lot of people's eyes as to who David was, what the loft was, and its position in dance music culture. And then, so we did those two comps, I think it was 99 and maybe 2000, and then my friend Tim's book came out, Lawrence's book came out after. So then it... All of a sudden, his story was out there, which was great. And I think it, that really helped him. So, And, of course, he started the parties here with us as well. And what was your motivation to move here to the UK, to London? Well, the first time, when I moved here 20 years ago, it was a, a different relationship. It's always like relationships and, and career is usually why you move. But I have to say, when it was suggested to me, I was like, yeah, I'll move to London. I mean, I, had, I was giving up a lot, you know, friends, family, radio show, and all different kinds of connections with my career. But I always, my grandmother was British. Um, 
she was a war bride, so there was always a connection. So my dad had lived here, uh, not necessarily in London, but in Plymouth, uh, when my grandfather was in the Korean War. And so there was always that kind of family connection as well. Uh, but there was a music connection for me. I was a real Anglophile, really, as a teenager, because it was like New Order, Joy Division, The Smiths, The Cure. I mean, these are the bands that I grew up with, that I worship. David Bowie, I mean, Charday. I mean, these are like, these are, there was so, Brian Eno, I, I could just go on and on and on and on. So I always had this kind of fantasy that after high school, I was not going to go to university. I was just going to move to London and be the coolest person on earth, you know? I didn't know how I was going to make that happen. In any case, it, it came to me, so I was, in uh, London is one of the great music cities of the world, and I would never move to a city that wasn't a great music city, because there's a lot of cities that aren't great music cities, and London is fantastic. And um, yeah, so I was, I was keen, and I'm happy I did. And did you get straight involved in doing parties when you first got here? You know, I got a lot of, I actually, for the first time, was able to support myself as a DJ because uh, I um, there was this Italian booking agency called F&G, and they'd asked my friend Francois, uh, Francois K, Francois Kevorkian, about any new talent. And I had played at Body and Soul at, at their request like three times as a guest by that time. Um, and he mentioned me. And so I went over and I met them. And then one of the women who worked there, this woman, Ornella, asked if she could manage me. She had never managed anyone before. So all of a sudden I had a manager. And and I never had that before. I never, I just kind of was asked to play and I would play and, and I would have jobs as well and music. So it, all of a sudden I was supporting myself as a DJ and and uh, of course, the compilations were coming out as well, so that was really great. And I was start starting to do productions. You know, I had a, a record out on Playhouse with Danny Wang. I had a record out on Suburban. I started to, and then I started my own label and started doing my own productions. So it kind of all built from there. Mm. Uh, so David wanted to have a party in London. Were you involved from the beginning of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still unsure if we wanted, if. Tim and Tim and Jeremy wanted him to come over, or if, or if David thought it thought of it. But however it worked, I was asked by David, "Hey, what do you think about starting a party in London?" And he had been talking to Tim and uh, another friend of ours, Jeremy, who's, who's Tim's good friend, and and now my good friend too. And I had two friends. We had done one party with David here with Newphonic, but it was mainly everyone that went was all kind of. Um, people in the know. It was, you know, DJs and people in the business as opposed to just being available for anyone. But it was, it kind of, I think, initiated something. And so David said, you know, he kind of put us together and he, he said, you know, I want you to, you know, he, he wanted us to kind of make this party and we had to find a space. And that was that took a while <laughs> because it's all about acoustics. And we started the party together, I think, in 2003. And then it was the following year, right after I had a baby, like literally she was two weeks old. And Jeremy, bless him, came up with the bright idea, hey, let's buy our own sound system. <laughs> and that's what we did. <laughs> so, yeah, took out a business loan and bought a sound system. So it was absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. And there I was like sitting there, literally a daughter is two weeks old, sitting there. She's in the bassinet. It's me, Tim, Jeremy, and David around my kitchen table. I'm exhausted. Like absolutely. Like, oh my God, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. It's like, yeah, let's buy a sound system. Okay. <laughs> but I'm so glad we did. It was a great idea. I would have never, I would have never thought of that. So I really thank Jeremy for the, for thinking of that. And we did it. We bought it, and you know, and then it really became the party it is now. Because before we had, you know, sound suppliers coming in, it was never right. Dave was getting angry, and uh, we just did it. And he helped us. He helped us get really good deals as well. So that was nice. And um, you know, he he held our hand along the way. So yeah, he was really one of the co-founders of the party as well. Mm. So was it quite a process of like trial and error to get the perfect sound set up? It still is. <laughs> it's, it hasn't stopped. We are always 
tweaking it. Even at the parties in New York, David brought me back uh, a few years ago. He phoned me and asked me to come back to New York. And it, and even there, it's the same thing. You're still like, hmm, well, maybe we should, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, all, it's always a process. It's always a process. And you're always just trying to make it the best that you can make it with, with, the, with the principles that David had though, because they were, there were certain principles and um, trying to stay in line with that. Mm. What were those principles? Well, keeping it very simple. Number one, uh, it's about the purity of the system rather than enhancing it. So you don't want to listen to the sound system. You want to listen to the music. So, you know, that's why there's no EQ. There's no compression. We use incredible Kwetsu cartridges, moving call cartridges that David used. Um, and those cartridges just bring out the subtleties and the nuances of music in such a glorious way. And they're you know, very sensitive, very difficult to handle. Only certain people can be trusted with them because you know they're thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars or pounds uh, for each one. And you know, it's just a, and also the thing, another thing that's great is not using headphones because as much as I like DJing and love mixing, which I do do, and that's, what I, that's why I'm starting a party Cosmodelica because I, I'd want to convey that side of me as well on a great system, but not mixing is this, it's, and not using headphones, you're always in the music. So you're not queuing up and thinking of the next record and listening to on the headphones, you're always hearing what everyone else is hearing. And there's a lot to be said for that. And, and of course, playing the entire song. And it's just a very, it's a very beautiful, pure way of enjoying music. So you started in Shoreditch, is that right? Um, what was the ethos of the party in the beginning? And how did it get its name? How did it, oh, actually, Tim came up with the name because he was writing, the next book he wrote was about Arthur Russell. And Arthur Russell has a song. Uh, I can't remember. I think it's called Lucky Cloud, and so he came up with the I, that name, and I, we all oh, that was that's that's a winner. That's fantastic, and um, the ethos, the way it started, we didn't really uh, promote. We none of us were promoters at all, you know, which David liked. He said, "Just invite your friends," and that's kind of how it started. So we all had groups of friends that we brought along. And some got involved, some would come along to the party, and then it just kind of grew. I mean, we weren't like selling out for years, for years, and it was David playing records, musically hosting, you know. It, it took a lot of time for it to really, really get going, but then, and then it did, and it was just a very magical, collective kind of experience. You know, we, none of us were getting paid. We would obviously would pay David, because he was flying over and this is what he did, but none of us were. In fact, Tim, Jeremy, and I spent money on it, really, because we were really, you know. So it, was, it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't a business. It was something we all felt compelled to do because all of our lives have been changed by David as well. Tim's life had been and Jeremy, I mean, all of our lives have been. Other people, like Simon, Sharon, everyone, everyone that's involved, Everyone that's involved with the party, their lives have been changed as well. And the thing that's interesting, the party is really about community. So people, you know, we have, we had kids, some people got married, and, and, you know, it's just, that's, again, the most beautiful thing about it. That's the legacy, really. I mean, yeah, we have the sound system, and it's a party, but it's really the community aspect that is probably the most significant thing. What could someone expect if they attended a Lucky Cloud party? Well, first, they'd probably be surprised that there's children on the dance floor when they get there. That freaks a lot of people out. They're like, what? You know? <laughs> and that they're playing with balloons. <laughs> and so I think there's a real childlike spirit, which is what I remember feeling when I first entered the loft. Um, I felt like a child again, like free, free-spirited. And I think the fact that we have children on the dance floor right from the start playing with balloons and running around really taps, people have to tap in, they have to get over their ego. They gotta get over their cool self because there's like a two-year-old who's throwing a balloon at them, you know? There's just no way to escape that. So I think that's a really 
important thing. You kind of have to let your ego drop and just get into it. And we also expect people to kind of self-police themselves and be polite on the dance floor. If something spills to wipe it up, you know, like just don't bump into people, learn, you know, dance, you know, dance, but don't like be thrashing, you know, bumping into other, other people and, you know, not don't use your phone on the dance floor. I just, I don't even get that. I just don't even understand. I don't understand it at all. Or having a conversation in the middle of the dance floor. It's like, Go on the side, you know, go on the side. There's a stage, you have an area that's outside. I don't understand how people just stand, can stand and have a conversation on the dance floor. <laughs> I mean, of course you see your friends, but just, okay, let's go to the side and talk, you know, just, it's just odd. So, you know, sometimes it's great because other people will police it as well. Uh, it's like, you know, get rid of the phone. You, you can't live through your phone. So I think it's things like that. There's kind of old school ethics and, but they last. And that's why the, you know, David had created a certain template over the years, over the decades. And that's why his part, the, you know, the law party is still going on 50 years later. And do you find putting that sort of trust into people that are coming through the party affects the whole atmosphere? Absolutely. If people can, um, we do have security at Lucky Cloud because it is a venue that we rent and we have to, but they're so nice. They are absolutely wonderful people. They love to dance, uh, but we've never had a fight ever. And that's, we've been going over, we'll be 16 years. We've never had a, a fight because people, I don't know. I, I think the, when you give people responsibility and also the people that would be attracted to this party, I think aren't those types of people, you know, that would, that would fight. I suppose. Uh, I think the the energy of the situation and the room and the people and the music and the sound system, you know, the sound system too. Don't forget, when there's not a lot of distortion, and when there's not too much bass, you know, too much bass and too much distortion agitates you. It's not physically good for you, or psychologically that good for you. And so that's why you can dance for eight hours when you have a beautiful system that's not like too loud with too much bass and distortion. And I think it makes you a happier person probably as well, you know, more joyous. And building on that, you guys don't really focus on like the ego of the DJ. You, you don't even use the term DJ, do you? No, it's musical host. We generally don't even mention who it is. Yeah. So does that affect kind of the way people are facing because they're not really facing the DJ? Yeah, exactly. Which is really nice. So uh, because the here's the other thing, the way the speakers are set up. So let's say you have the turntables are behind you. When, in most clubs, you'll have the DJ booth and then the speaker is coming this way. So it's all about this stage where the DJ is because that's where the music is coming from. Uh, not all of it. I mean, they might be around the room. But at the loft party, at the Lucky Cloud party, the speakers are set up around the room this way. So actually, whoever's playing the music can hear the music properly, number one. Number two, you're not getting the vibrations as well that you would get having speakers all around you, especially sub-bass. Um, and so if you really want to hear the music properly, you shouldn't be facing that way. You should be facing the speakers, really. So when I, you know, and, and, and that, it's really quite nice because uh, it shouldn't, and the, whoever's playing records were on the same level. It's not like up on a stage, you know. Uh, and so, it, yeah, it's, it's not about, a, it's not a performance. And how do all of these factors affect your music selections when you're going to play at the party compared to your other DJ sets? Uh, I, you know, David once said the, the music plays itself and that's where I always try to get, you get to a point where, uh, I was talking about synchronicity before, I'll think of a, because you have to think of it in your head first because there's no headphones. So you have to know your records and then I'll literally, you'll go, oh, this would be really good. And I'll turn and I'll go flick. There it is right there. And, then, and when, when you get to that, that place, it's great. You know, I think the timings of the party dictate the kind of music. So if you're doing a Sunday party from five to midnight, there's a certain trajectory and journey that you do. When I was playing 
records with David or even on my own in New York where the party started at midnight and went to noon, that's a whole other feel. And there's so a friend of ours, Satoru, uh, in Japan, who has a place called Precious Hall, whose his life was changed by David too. And I I've been I've been playing for him for over 20 years now. Uh, but when we play in Japan, you can go to 9, 10 in the morning as well. And it's just as a different feel. So I think it's also the timings as well, what time of day, what the mood's like, what season it is, uh, who's in the room. I mean, this all, that's why I, I've never done, I, that's why I don't understand the whole, like I've shown up with my DJ set and this is what I'm going to do because it's all about what's happening in the moment really that affects everything. So alongside all of your work at Lucky Cloud, you've also been doing classic album Sundays. Yeah. Um, would you like to tell everyone about where the idea for that came from and what exactly is classic album Sundays? Sure. Well, as I was mentioning before, alongside DJing, I've, I've worked in music my entire life. Basically, I, I've waited a few tables in university and I attempt once for two weeks. I mean, literally, that's all I've done uh, pretty much outside of music. So I've done a lot of different things from record collecting, you know, DJing, uh, record shops, four different record shops, record labels, making music, uh, marketing, running a DJ record pool, uh, journalism. I mean, a lot of different stuff, syndicated radio shows. So it's all these different things. And all of those experiences have informed me and educated me about all different kinds of music. And then with our with David and my experience of him teaching me about the sound, because he really mentored me on that. And then with my friends Tim and Jeremy buying this system, I had I was kind of thrown into the deep end of learning about sound systems. And David, I remember one time our our engineer Ian couldn't make it down to London because he had broken his foot. And I was like, Oh my gosh, David, I what what are we gonna do? I mean, he's like, Well, you can do it. He goes, you have a triple PhD, you can do it. And I, I was able to do it. I couldn't believe it. So I, um, I learned a lot already. And we had some of this equipment at our house, two clip shorns at our house. And my husband and I had also started buying some hi-fi. We've got some quad, uh, quad mono amps, the valve amplifiers. Uh, we had the, the two clip shorns. We got a Mark Levinson ML1. So all these different uh, hi-fi equipment and I have a massive record, well, you know, a, 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 a big record collection uh, that I've been, you know, schlepping around uh, for too, too long. And so people would come over and we'd play records and they would hear things in a different way because of the sound system. They would experience it a completely different way than you maybe you normally did. So... That was one of the reasons I kind of thought this would be a really good idea. And then my friend Greg Wilson had started a blog called Living Living in Music or Living to Music, I think, where you'd, he'd pick an album once a month and everyone would listen to it in their homes or whatever format. And his, he said he listened to it in silence. He said, clean, you should do this. So one time, he, I think he had picked Dark Side of the Moon. And I was listening on our sound system in silence, like, oh my God, this is just, this sounds incredible. And I went on to the forum and people were like, yeah. And I, I think I went on to the forum and uh, people are mentioning, oh, and listening to it in your sound system must be incredible. Those, some people that already knew me. And then I thought, you know, with my experience in journalism and storytelling and radio and sound and doing events, I should do like a album club, you know? And so I bumped into my friends at the playground. This is my glamorous life. And my daughter was really young. I was at the playground and I saw some friends of mine. They have three pubs. And I told them my idea and they thought, it was, oh, great, we'll give you one of our pubs. You know, you can use it. And it had a function room, so it had its own room so I could have quiet because I couldn't do it in a bar area. It'd be too noisy. And so I started in October 2010, just as a little like, oh, you know, it was crazy because we were lifting these massive speakers up stairways, valve amps, you know, in the taxi, got the babysitter. I think like five people came and then we did all, <laughs> it was like for two hours, you know, and did all this work. But it was written up in a magazine called Word and the BBC saw it. And it just started to kind of, I wasn't, I didn't have a website or anything. And it just kind of, uh, it was put onto BBC Breakfast one day. 
and that that was it. So it just kind of became its own force, really. And it's it's great. I mean, what it is, it tells. It's a way to experience music. We were, I was talking earlier about you know how now there's so much music out there, and which is great because it's very you know democratic. Anyone can make music and put it out there, but there's just also so much more to go through. And the, what the world needs is curators, and so this is kind of like educational, curational, and also emotive. You know, it's a way to experience music in a way that I felt had been lost since I was a child and sitting in my bedroom on my crappy hi-fi, listening to records, but with, you know, almost in silence with my friends, you know, like, listen, I just got this new Joy Division, you know, not new Joy Division, I have this new record and we'll put it on and listen to the whole thing and sit there, oh, wow. And I, I just, what I had noticed is everyone's walking around with earbuds, no one's sharing music. And audio, while, while all visual formats were getting better and more and more high definition, audio, since the advent of the CD, was getting worse. It was getting lower and lower resolution. So, for instance, CDs are like 16-bit, 44 kilohertz, and, and it, it was like a lot lower than... It, it, it was just not as dense and as high resolution a format as vinyl could be. And then it just got lower and lower and lower with the MP3. And then all of a sudden, that's what people are listening to is just MP3. It's not like just using it as a tool, but actually that's their end listening experience on some crappy earbuds. And not to say that there's anything really wrong with that, because I've done that plenty of times too. And I listen to music in the car, which is one of the worst places you can listen to music, technically, like sonically, but one of the best places to listen to music, really. Um, so, but I'm just saying it, it was really more about addressing these issues of long, attentive listening, only listening, as opposed to multitasking. I was able to offer a great hi-fi for people to really hear details they had never heard before. So you're offering something they don't normally get, telling the stories behind albums, giving... And because I've been in music for so long in so many different ways, I can give a musical context as well. So it's, you know, playing records that are somehow related, whether they're influences or contemporaries. It's educated, it educates people. It's also musical uh, and it's, it's emotive. People cry. I've cried, actually, uh, before. And um, laugh as well. And it's also, it's communal, so you're sharing music in that community sense, even if you don't really know the person next to you. It could be a completely different background in life, but you're united by this album, basically. So, yeah, I think it just touched a lot of people's, and, and the whole audiophile bar thing hadn't started yet either. This is, you know, no one else is really doing anything like that. And it just, I think it, it touched a lot of people. Would you tell me about a session that's been particularly memorable to use, a special one oh just for you? There must be a lot oh to choose God. from. Yeah, it's so hard. Well, I said before that I cried. Before I probably cried a couple of times, actually. Um, there's so many. Well, a few. They're, they're older records. One is Johnny Mitchell Blue. And I just picked that up. We're doing a book with classic albums. Sunday's called Favorite Albums by Women, where we have all these different people holding up uh, their favorite album by women and taking a selfie and writing about it. And I, I picked Joni Mitchell's, I think, one of my favorite artists of all time ever. She's a game changer in music. And period, regardless of gender. It's just, she just is and hasn't, I don't think, gotten the credit she's really deserved. And she, she, her, her discography is incredible. Blue is a great entry point in her most famous album. But there's a song on there called Little Green about a daughter that she had to give up for adoption. Uh, and not just from birth either. I think the child, I think her daughter's about one. So she already had a bond and she had to give, she felt she had to give this daughter up for adoption because of her career. And this is, you know, a different time, no judgment, because it's a different era of time, especially for women working in music, you know, and trying to be an artist. And it's this song where she is, and as a mother, gosh, even just talking about it, it's hard. Um, yeah, she's singing about this, her daughter, and she's wondering what her life is like. And it's just intense. So that's a really, that whole album is incredible. Uh, another one that really 
does it for me is Astral Weeks, Van Morrison. And it's an album that I've grown with, of, you know, it's, it's touched my life in so many different ways, different times. And it's also my friend David Mancuso is one of his favorite albums. And it's the album I listened to on repeat, you know, just over and over the day he passed away. And it's, it's just one of these albums that keeps giving, like you think you know it and you don't, and you hear something else. And I did a documentary on it for Six Music last year. I had to study it and, and, and kind of relate it to Belfast, actually. That's where Van Morrison's from. And I just dove head over heels into this album, like in a, in a kind of academic way as well. But emotionally, it's just, it's just so great. There's so many, though, because I could say Prince Purple Rain, because I saw the tour. You know, I mean, there's all these. And then there's new ones, too. And there's, there's albums that just, I don't know. You, you know, there's, there's so many albums that touch your life. Uh, that are just part of the fabric of your life, really, and that bring you back to certain points of time. But it's not all about nostalgia either, really. So, and then we do a lot of events with artists. So that's those are always so great too. I mean, I just learned so much and have such a great time, you know, talking to some of my favorite artists. Amazing. Well, we're going to open up the room if anyone has a question for Colleen in a moment. But before we do that, you have a new party coming to London soon. What is the approach? What can we expect from that? Okay, well, I do a, a radio show on Worldwide FM called Cosmodelica, and it's a monthly show, uh, the first Friday of the month. And, you know, I, I don't actually play a lot in London. I do play all over the world, but I, you know, we do the lucky cloud parties, but I don't really feel like that's, that's, that's a whole community and it's a whole ethos. And I wouldn't say that's me DJing, but I do love DJing as well. I mean, I'm, and the ethos behind it is kind of bringing my radio show to life. And I'm going to have supporting DJs from Worldwide FM as well. So new talent, uh, young talent, which I think is really important to foster. And it's going to be an audiophile system, of course, because Giant Steps has that. It's a beautiful system. And it's uh, it just announced it today. It's the 11th of May. Um, and I want it to be, it's like psychedelic, uh, just kind of, kind of combining all the different kinds of music that I like for the dance floor. I mean, I'm, it's not that I'm going to sit there and play classic album Sundays stuff. You know, it's, it's about, it's for the dance floor. Uh, and just something that I feel is emotive and a party and probably, you know, but more tied into my radio show as well. So yeah, something, something different, a little different. Some of the same ethos as Lucky Cloud, but, but different as well. More, more me, I suppose. Well, thank you, Colleen, for coming and sharing with us today. Does anyone have a question for Colleen that they would like to ask? Um, I've got two, is that all right? I promise yeah, they're quick. no problem. So you mentioned, um, like, when you were talking about sound systems and the quality of the sound system, I kind of immediately thought of, like, a few that really affected me. So I was wondering what other sound, system have you, sound systems have you experienced around the world that you think are amazing? And I also really wanted to know what headphones you use, just, like, daily. <laughs> I'm using the headphones. The ones I have right now are Audio Technicas. They're the top pro ones that they've given to me, which I really love for DJing. I also have other I have headphones from, you know, Klipsch, from Kef, and from Bowers and Wilkins. I do get a, I get a lot of headphones. Sorry. Um, so I have lots of headphones that I use for DJing. I have these great Audio Technica ones that are the, the, just the top the top DJ ones that they have. Uh, in terms of other places. Um, one of my other favorite places is Precious Hall. Uh, and my friend Satoru, he, I started, in fact, my first uh, DJ gig outside of the US wasn't here in Britain. It was actually in Japan. And I was, I went and played for this man who I was now a good friend of mine, Satoru. And he has a part, has a cl club in Sapporo in the Northern Ireland, uh, island of Hokkaido. And at that time, his sound system was quite known, but it was JBL speakers. Uh, I think it was a Yuri mixer, uh, but it was still great, you know, but it was a great club system. And then he met David. 
<laughs> and his David just changed his life. He ends now. I think he has sixteen clipshorns. But in any case, he decided at that time. Once he got to know David, he built two clubs. One that had the traditional DJ setup, which most DJs play on, uh, the JBL speakers and, and everything else. Still fabulously set up, wonderful. And then he had a system that he built where basically David played, I think I played on it, Francois maybe, another local DJ in Japan, and that's basically it. And so now he has this space where he has two rooms. So he has the regular DJ side, and then he has the side with all the clipshorns and the koetsus and everything else. And uh, that, and just the way he has it decorated and the acoustics of the room and the whole feeling. And it's not Tokyo as well. It's like north. So it's just a different feeling. Uh, that's my other favorite place. <laughs> One more question. Hey. Uh, we live in a very different time now where passive music discovery is a thing. And uh, you've obviously talked a lot about the earlier years of a very kind of active musical discovery experience. So I just wondered how you discovered music now, given the technologies and formats and things that are available. Well, I, I'm quite lucky being in music. You, of course, get turned on to music by so many different people. One's my daughter, I have to say, because she's 14 and she's obsessed. And she plays, she has a really good ear. So I've been listening to a lot of music that I would have never discovered without her. I'm also surrounded by people younger than me, which is fantastic. And I think I'm also discovering old music as well. I think, I think Classic Album Sundays has really opened up so much, you know, in terms of the different style. I'm doing events on classical music, and I have to learn about classical music, which is great. So I'm always discovering music, whether it's jazz, classical, modern, pop, electronic. And then being a DJ and having a radio show, I've got to stay on top of things. I'll go to Phonica. I'll go, I get loads of stuff sent to me. I listen to it. You know, I do listen to it. And um, I reject most of it. I'm really, <laughs> but there's always a few things in there. It's like amazing. And I always think there's great music being made. And yeah, it's still a, so I discover music actively still, but also passively. So it could be something else someone else is playing, you know, uh, including my daughter at our own house, you know. So um, yeah, it's, I don't think I'll ever stop discovering music. In fact, sometimes I even go through my record collection to rediscover music that I forgot about. But it's something, uh, that I think I'll always do. Great, thank you. Oh, do you want to do one more? Okay. <laughs> um, just um, quickly, because I can relate. So you said that you moved to London 20 years ago, mm. great musical city, always wanted mm. to be here. So what are your favorite things about London and what do you do every day in London? And you know, mm. do you still live here? Yeah. Full time and Full work, time. and do you feel a Londoner yet? Oh yeah, I feel like a Londoner, absolutely. I mean, one thing I love is this is the city. Well, first of all, the multiculturalism of the city, but New York has that as well. So that's not really anything different to New York. Might be different cultures, uh, but it's still multicultural, like New York City is. I love the greenery and the parks. I live in East London. I can go walk around Hackney Marshes. And I just, you know, I, I love that whole green side of London that we don't have in New York as much, except for Central Park and Prospect Park. Uh, as I love that. I love the river. I love the Tate. I'm a member of a lot of different museums. Um, I try to go out to the theater, to dance, to, to, um, to museums. I kind of have taught myself about art, so I really love the museums. I love going to like Szechuan restaurants because it's like, the best Szechuan restaurant, the, you know, because it's authentic, like the authenticity that you can get with restaurants because it's people from those countries that are making the food. Um, I, love, I love East London. Really, especially, I have to say, I really, really am so happy I landed there uh, a long time ago, too. I was <laughs> so happy I did. One thing that's different than New York, I noticed as a DJ, is that I felt in New York a lot of people were quite happy playing the same records. And I felt in London I was challenged more 
to discover and push the boundaries more. And I like that. I like that kind of feeling that I don't get too complacent musically. So that's another thing I really love. Um, I just think it's a great, I just, I just love this. Also, you know, being, well, we're, we're sort of part of Europe, I guess. So. <laughs> um, but like being just part where we can get to a lot of different places so quickly as well. Like when you live in a, a big country like America, I mean, there's Mexico and Canada. That's that's you, and it's huge. I mean, getting across America is huge. Just being able to go to Italy, and, and, you know, that that proximity to all these different countries. I love that as well. And the fact that we have, you know, that we can get places so quickly is great. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I love, I absolutely love London. And the music scene, I think there's just so much going on. And I, as I said earlier, like I'm trying to learn about classical music and I can go hear some of the greatest pianists or, or, or you know, violinists or whatever. It's amazing. Well, thank you everyone for coming to Full Circle. We're going to do some more of these throughout the year, particularly celebrating women in music. And Colleen, thank you for sharing your stories with us. Thank you. Thank you.